I'm Lauren. Hello, I'm Sarah. And welcome to Montalino Mama. Welcome back, everybody. Today we have with us Erin McKenna, mother of three bilingual children, English-Spanish, including a son who was diagnosed with Down syndrome and autism. Welcome, Erin. Hey, Erin. Thank you. So first, Erin, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself and your own language background, what languages you speak, and how you learned them? Yes. Um, so I, I grew up in Wisconsin. I grew up speaking English. I started learning Spanish when I was in high school. My high school had a pretty like legitimate study abroad program where every other year we would go to Mexico, the students from the U.S., and then the other the opposite years the students would come oh. to to stay with our families in Wisconsin. And because I have actually done a lot of research on this type of thing, like exchange programs and study abroad, so I know that in reality those types of programs are not that common. A lot of times it's more of a one-way type of experience. So the fact that this one was more about like creating these friendships, um, I think is just significant to mention. And then it, because it was so well-developed, it was in like its 30th year by the time I was in high school. Um, they really had a great way of like coordinating everything and um, having that type of an exchange where the, the, where the families really welcomed the students into it, into each other's homes. So I participated in that in all four years in high school. So that meant I was in Mexico twice and then I received students twice. And through that experience, I really liked the opportunity to speak Spanish in like in, you know, in a place where people were speaking Spanish. And so I really felt like that inspired me to want to continue learning it and studying it. So I ended up majoring in Spanish in, in college. And then also when it was time for me to do an actual study abroad program, I actually went and lived with some of my friends that I'd made through that program. And so I dropped out of my university and directly enrolled in a university there. And I was living with my friends and they were my age. And so it was all of the, you know, needing to learn all of the um, colloquialisms that they used, needing to defend myself quick against their jokes and all of that really was what facilitated becoming fluent. So like in a six month period of time when I was living with them, by the time that was done, I felt very competent. And then after that, I actually did like a more traditional study abroad program in Cuba. And that was where it was very evident how, um, you know, how fluent I was, because then when I went to Cuba, it was easy for me, whereas a lot of the other students who I was uh, attending that program with really could not um, speak Spanish that well. I mean, if they had anything, it was just like, you know, coursework type Spanish. So I did all, I mean, so I did that part in Mexico by myself and then did the one in Cuba. And so by then, like, because I was fluent, then I've had subsequent opportunities to speak Spanish a lot just through career things, or I went, I went back and lived in Mexico. Uh, I was hired by a law firm that um, was transitioning to like putting up an office in Costa Rica. So I was there for a year. So I've had a lot of opportunities to continue because that's the other thing I think about language development is like, you can learn it and be good at it for a while, but if you don't keep it up, then it doesn't, you know, can go, it can go away a little bit. So yeah, so that was how I, I became fluent in Spanish. And after um, after I finished undergrad, I did decide that I wanted to learn Portuguese. And so I just, again, embarked on my own. Uh, Portuguese was, it, I mean, I think I'm competent in it, but it was never something that I was as fluent in as, as Spanish. Tell us about um, 
other members of your family. Is it your husband? You have you I believe you have three children. Is that right? Yes. So uh, my family consists of my husband Pablo and my, my three kids Raymare, Soleya, and Tiero. Mm -hmm. uh, Pablo grew up in Peru and uh, speaks Spanish, but he also attended a, a German school in Peru for his like elementary and high school years. So his second language is German. Mm -hmm. uh, and then later on, he took some Italian classes because he has Italian heritage. So he also then was able to acquire. Italian and then finally he learned English more as an adult because he was pursuing his graduate studies in the US so he he I I think at this point I mean definitely Spanish and English are his strong languages but he has the background in other languages as well and then my kids um Raymari is six Soleya is four and Tierro is two and they speak uh both English and Spanish at at times English is definitely their dominant language but um yeah exactly they live in the U.S. yeah we live in California. We'd like you to explain um what languages you're attempting to pass on to your children and how you've decided to do that. Okay so um yeah we have kind of an interesting uh journey in terms of the language that we speak uh, when my husband and I first met, we were speaking in Spanish all the time, and that was something that I was comfortable with. Uh, but after about a month together, we kind of were realizing that it wasn't wasn't really fair that only you know I was only the one that was kind of developing that second language, and he was he was not. So we established a routine where we alternated languages every two weeks, and that was just something that he and I did in our relationship. Uh, and so we just and we kept that up um, until our first child was born. And that was Remare. And so we kind of knew going into like having a child that um, that might not be the, the best approach because I had been reading that you have to be like, make more clear distinctions between which languages you're speaking. And I didn't feel like a time, we, like a time period for a baby, like that would not be a clear distinction. They wouldn't know like why we're all of a sudden switching. So in my mind, I had it set out that like we should, um, you know, like have Spanish be the home, the, the home language, and then English would be the language we spoke outside of the home. So initially, that's kind of how we started it. Mm -hmm. um, and also, like I had heard of other possible ways to do this, like maybe one caregiver speaks one language, the kind of the, the dominant language of that person. Mm -hmm. But I always knew that it was not the best opportunity, that would not be the best approach for us, because being the one who is going to spend more time with the child and being also being the one that speaks the dominant language, it didn't language. Yeah. Uh, seem like he would ever acquire the second language. So I knew that that was not a great, a great option for us. Um, so yeah, so anyways, as we did this, where it was like some people, you know, speaking in home Spanish, of course, it got complicated when we had people coming into our home that were not Spanish speakers. And so I don't feel like I ever had a great way of like how to deal with that. Mm -hmm. um, when I was, when my oldest was approaching two years old and I was about to have our second child, I did pick up a book about raising bilingual kids. And I remember one of the takeaways that I got from that was that like, even if I had these clear distinctions, I mean, probably the more important thing was just like to continue having like a family language. And so therefore I was, I, what like what I learned from that and what we started implementing was that rather than um, like saying, okay, uh, somebody's in our house now, so now we're going to speak English because someone's here, I would continue to speak to them in Spanish, even if like sometimes we were also speaking English. 
And so that, and, and the same, like, instead of saying, okay, we're outside the house, now we speak English, it was more just like, we speak Spanish together. Mm -hmm. If people come up to us and are speaking English, that's fine. But like, when we, I still address my kids in Spanish, um, and maybe we'll translate some of the stuff that I'm saying to someone else to, to my kids in Spanish, just to kind of keep them experiencing all those languages. Mm -hmm. um, so that was what I implemented then, like, so basically when my oldest was about two and when I had my, my second child. So, and that practice continued for a couple years of, of doing it like that. Now, I think it's important to mention that my oldest child has Down syndrome and autism. And the Down syndrome was diagnosed at birth and the autism when, was when he was approaching four years old. Mm -hmm. So the reality of those diagnoses have been, they've had a pretty profound impact on our family's language development. So, and it was like within hours of Raymari's birth that we were visited by a pediatric geneticist in the hospital. And it was funny because that person, like one of the main things he was kept trying to tell us was that we should raise him just like we would raise any other child. Of course, we didn't have any other children at that point. So it's kind of hard to figure <laughs> out what that even means. You know, so he said that. And I remember distinctly telling him that we were planning to raise our children bilingual. And right away, even though he had just said, treat them all the same, he was like very skeptical of our ability to do this. So that was pretty disheartening, um, but fortunately enough for us, he was pretty much the only person that ever had that type of attitude about bilingualism for my son. Um, but so, you know, it didn't deter me. I continued with the practice as I've described it, like doing, first of all, you know, the, the, the distinction between in-home and out-of-home, and then later on realizing that we should just have a family language, which is Spanish. And, and again, like the, the speech therapists were always encouraging of us to continue right. with the Spanish. And even though we never actually, which was kind of unfortunate, like we never had a bilingual speech therapist, which would have been great to help. Also just for understanding, like, is, I think, I mean, there's gotta be some little differences linguistically about like what he should be doing or can't be doing. And since they didn't have that familiarity, they couldn't really give us that wisdom. Um, but also just because then he would, we wouldn't have to be so back and forth between languages for him, which I think could be, was, was kind of challenging. But so despite the fact that they really weren't bilingual, they did encourage it. And like, they did try to speak Spanish, the few words they knew, or like try to incorporate it into the sessions that they had with him. So we did have support in that regard. Um, but that said, so Raymari's speech was extremely, extremely slow to develop. Um, it was, like even compared to other children with Down syndrome, I think it was starting to become really obvious by the time he was about two, that it was even slower than, than those other children with Down syndrome. So, um, and also like I'd often read about how children with Down syndrome had receptive language skills that were far superior to their expressive language. And I did not feel that way with Ray Mare. I just felt like both his receptive and expressive language, they were both like extremely affected um, even like non-oral forms of communication, like using sign language was really hard for him. Um, and so these things like I can reflect on now as maybe being something to like red flag type of thing. But at the time it was just like, and we had actually had people guarantee us that there was no way he had autism. Um, so that's interesting too. Another part of our, you know, just the whole overall package for us of figuring out how to deal with things for him. Um, but yeah, so like even, uh, non-oral forms of communication like sign it was like I tried to teach him the sign for for more or mass it took him so long like over six months to just put his two hands together to do that and um and so I think just overall language development is a challenge for him like the in, it initiating any sort of communication 
is not something that he was interested in. And I, I think I'll just mention this now, like I actually have, because of how slow it was for him to come up and like figure out these signs, I developed this book series, which is forthcoming about how to teach sign language to kids in a way that I, I feel like if I had those materials, it would have been better for us to be able to do that. So that's something that I am like, you know, trying to work on now during the pandemic. It's hard to get everything together, but, um, but yeah, so it, it hopefully will be a resource to families who want to be able to teach. That do you have a totally. title for that? Yeah, Sign Along Stories is what I'm calling it. Um, and hopefully we'll be part of like a bigger package of different types of literature and materials for teaching kids um, like alternative ways of learning things. So, uh, but yeah, Sign Along Stories is the name of my book series. Erin McKenna, watch out for it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so because of how, how slow language was coming for Raymare, I did wonder if it had to do with the bilingualism, you know, and just that kind of inconsistent, sometimes we're speaking this language, sometimes we're not, we're speaking a different language, and how, how is his brain uh, assimilating that, and like figuring it out, and so, um, and a lot, and people, people will often say that bilingual children will take longer to start speaking, but then I also feel like most of the speech and language uh, pathologists that I have spoken to over the years say that that really isn't the Case. Mm -hmm. And I can say from having my two developing kids, I didn't, that, that is not an issue. Like speaking different languages has not been an issue. So, so I feel like because of that, I've gotten these mixed messages of like, I, in my, in my gut, feel like there's something that is making this hard for him. But at the same time, like most people, the, you know, the experts are really saying that shouldn't be the case. Right. Mm -hmm. So, um, over to, you know, since I had set my sights on being bilingual um, and I really wanted to prove that geneticist wrong, I, I persisted and continued to speak Spanish for a very long time with my kids um, because I really wanted to, for them to, you know, for us to be able to do that. Um, but I think I still had those doubts, you know, and so when Raymari was turning three, he was eligible to start the public school program because that's part of stipulated as federal law that children with disabilities are starting public school at three years old. Mm -hmm. And at that time we were still living in Illinois. This is where Raymari was born. That's where we um, started our family. Um, and so we, we were really happy that we found the public school that had uh, options for both Spanish only instruction and bilingual instruction. Wow. And that they even had a Spanish uh, speech and language pathologist. So we were, I mean, I was, we were very excited about this. And after kind of finding out a little bit more about those different classroom types, I decided that it would be better. We decided um, that the Spanish one would be the best because it would kind of eliminate that issue that I was feeling like he's mm -hmm. kind of getting this back and forth and he would have more consistent Spanish. And then eventually the English would come, but like I wanted, I, th I felt like he really needed to have something solid in Spanish if we really wanted him to be bilingual. That's so um, And so- uh, You've had that. Oh, it, it, it was very lucky, but the story changes. <laughs> oh no. So, um, yeah, and so, and just to give some context, like at this point, when he was about three years old, he was saying the only words he was saying was ma for mas, so that he wasn't even able to like produce that that final S sound for mas. And then he was saying pa for poppy and maybe even mommy, like he didn't distinguish between the two. So all he said, that was the only thing that he could verbally say. Mm -hmm. um, and so, so I was really excited about this school opportunity. 
uh, his, he turned three in May. And so he wouldn't start school until the next August. And then of course we moved over the summer and we kind of, I mean, I kind of knew that that was a possibility, but was kind of hoping that like, that wasn't actually going to happen because we had gotten in, like, we were excited about this opportunity for him for school. And so that's when we ended up moving to California, um, where despite how many people were like, California, that's great. There's going to be so many people that speak Spanish there. Uh, in terms of education, I would say it was really a step down on a couple different issues. One being the bilingual education, especially at the preschool level. Mm-hmm. But then secondly, and maybe, and, and what I discovered was more important is in the inclusive education. So for inclusive education, and I know this is kind of going into a different realm, but like something that's super important to us, inclusive education is basically that children with disabilities are educated in the same classroom as typical, typically developing children, and they're given the same opportunities instead of being pulled out into these separate segregated classrooms. Mm-hmm. So um, I didn't realize that this was not something that was universal, despite the fact that really federal law demands that that opportunity is there for all kids. But there is kind of this gap with preschools being something that is only offered, is only mandated by federal law for students who have disabilities. So some places who don't offer it to a wider population are not going to have those typical kids in the classroom. Mm -hmm. And so I found um, the one school district in the area that we could afford in California, where we're close enough to my husband's work, that had some kind of inclusive setup. And at that point, I mean, I had to make the decision for sure that like, what of those two things is more important, like the span, I mean, I don't even know, I didn't even look into the Spanish, because at that point, it was like, that is so secondary to like him being educated with his peers, because that can also set the tone for the rest of his, his, his academic career, like his education. So like that, I mean, that was the only thing then that I needed to worry about was getting him into a school environment where he was, uh, you know, with his peers. So, so we found the one school that did that, but at that point, like having the Spanish as a preschool option was totally off the table. And so that meant that then his two years of preschool, it was in an all English classroom. And um, when we, I did look like there was a private Spanish speaking preschool in our city that I looked into. Um, it was in, was run out of someone's home. And I was thinking, well, maybe we could supplement with that, at least give him some educational opportunities in Spanish. But uh, that person like after a couple like exchanges she kind of backed out and I think she was intimidated by not feeling like she was that comfortable having a child that had the unique differences that Raymari has Um, so that's just another reality for us that like we're not always going to be welcomed into the opportunities that other kids might have Um, and so so yeah so they did have um, then so like kind of moving past that preschool age the kindergarten in our city did have a bilingual program, um, but by that time, it was um, like, I guess, I'll let me let me just say, so it was during his first year in preschool that Raymari was diagnosed with autism, so I had started to look into it, and so then we were kind of, um, you know, m- more aware that there were going to be, like, that, that the language impairment is like a character, you know, it's a characteristic of having that dual diagnosis, and that we would need to be aware of what that would mean uh, language wise. And I think just to like, in general, um, p- people who have that dual diagnosis, there is a pretty significant language uh, barrier and difficulty. Mm-hmm. So uh, it, it seemed like it kind of fit along with what we were seeing for with Raymari for so long. Um, and you, go did ahead. you encounter more resistance to the idea of raising him bilingually after the 
uh, autism diagnosis, you know, from his teachers or doctors? Um, I don't think so. Um, in part, yeah, I don't know. I don't feel like I felt that at all. Um, I think, in, but having the autism diagnosis, I think in part, there were certain things that was, it was unclear about that diagnosis. So, and just to give you some context, so there, there's a book that I was referred to when I was starting to suspect or wanting to look into that dual diagnosis and I read it and I mean, I, I was like, this is not my son. So he doesn't have this, like reading this whole book about autism and down syndrome, it didn't reflect anything about what I, I saw with him in the day to day. And so that to give you evidence of how little people understand that dual diagnosis. So I think as now that he, it's been like three years since then, I can see things much more. I can see the kind of what parts of, you know, what, where he's falling on the spectrum better. And so I can see that, yes, that is an accurate diagnosis for him. But uh, in part, it's like three years time. Also, we know more, even just in three years, because I think people are pushing the issue more. Um, but also, I think it's just clear that like, people don't know. And so people don't have any idea of like how this is actually what it actually looks like in reality. I mean, there can be such a broad variety of what it can, um, you know, how it can manifest that I think you know, you can have a whole book on the subject and it just is like, looks so foreign. It doesn't look like your kid at all. So, um, so yeah, so given the fact that it was kind of unclear when he was first diagnosed, I actually didn't bring it up to the school in part because this school district didn't have this history of, of like the, not all kids were included even at the elementary level. So once they passed preschool and I was a little bit afraid that if they saw that he had the dual diagnosis, they would not include him in the general ed classroom. Mm -hmm. So I was like, well, you know, this is information for me only. I understand that this is a possibility that he has this, you know, dual diagnosis, but I'm not going to necessarily bring it up. I, I mean, no one was pushing it or trying to, you know, figure it out and nobody was um, discouraging the Spanish, but I will also say that, so like after that diagnosis, the next summer, so he, that diagnosis may be in April, that summer, we had an opportunity to participate in a um, more intensive communication program for kids with Down syndrome as a summer, like a summer, kind of like a summer school. Mm -hmm. And um, they, that was where we first saw him like kind of get over that, like he would make the impulse to speak. And so, and that program was in English. And, and so with that shift in him by that, the next fall after that program, I feel like I was starting to speak a lot more English because I could see him making an attempt to speak. Mm -hmm. And that's where it was like, okay, it's got to be confusing for him. And for somebody who already has that difficulty to have that impulse for him to like, try to say something like, you know, horse and me being like, yeah, caballo. And then it's kind of like, okay, you just changed a one syllable word into a three syllable word. And it's something totally different. And like, I'm disheartened now, you know, to even mm -hmm. try. So I feel like that's where I was starting to affirm what he was trying to say more and then more and more English. You know, I was speaking more and more English in, as that process unfolded. And it wasn't something that I was conscious of, but like just you start, you know, you realize over time that it was starting. And I think it became clear when my daughter, who at that point was about two, so like her first spoken language was Spanish, but then like over this couple months period of time, she was speaking English, you know? And so then I kind of realized like, yeah, we're not speaking as much Spanish and she's not getting enough Spanish to keep, to maintain her Spanish. And she's up, she's preferring English. Mm -hmm. um, 
so uh, so that's where we were when Raymar was in his second year of preschool. And so we had started, you know, little by little, we're kind of speaking more and more English. Then we were given the opportunity to figure out like which kindergarten he should go to. And the city did have a bilingual program for kindergarten that was across town. But I was kind of like, you know, I'm not sure if at this point he's going to be ready. I mean, the language was still so emergent that like, are we then, how is that going to affect him to like change everything that he's learned at, like all he's gained in terms of language and stuff in a classroom environment to switch it to, to Spanish at this point. And the way that the bilingual programs were like 100% in Spanish. So it was a really tough decision. And the other thing that really weighed on my mind was that they said that they couldn't guarantee him an aid and he would need a one-to-one aid to help him in school. They couldn't guarantee that the aid could speak Spanish. So I was like, well, I don't even know how that would work. You know, like if he's in a classroom with somebody who does and they're speaking in Spanish and the aid is supposed to help him but can't understand what they're talking about. Like, (laughs) how would that even work? So if they can't guarantee that, I just don't think that would be a successful plan. Mm-hmm. So we opted to just go with the, the, the local school, which was in English. And I think um, socially, it was a great choice for him um, because, and, and I, and just for me to like, just the way that I could get involved and it was going so great. And then we had the pandemic and school shut down for him. And so mm-hmm. that was uh, very frustrating, but I will say that like, you know, the silver lining is that it, it gave us a lot of different opportunities, but one of which was to, uh, we ended up moving during this time to a different city, a different school district. And the house that we happened to find that was in our budget was in the zone of the bilingual school. So since since September, he has been in the first grade at a bilingual school. And I felt like even like it, I, because his language has definitely improved, it, it has improved a lot in the during the pandemic. So for one thing, like he's at a different place now than when I was making that decision about kindergarten. Um, But the second part of it is like, because this stuff is going on at home, I felt like I would be able to be a smoother or an easier transition, like help him through an easier transition to like an educational environment that's in Spanish because he wasn't just being thrust into a, you know, six or seven hour day in a Mm -hmm. school in a language that he wasn't that comfortable with anymore. Um, and so here we are just like using a lot more Spanish at home and I'm, I'm there to help him through listening to the, the stuff that's being transmitted via Zoom for him. And he is working with my guidance on learning to read and write and do all the counting in Spanish. So, I mean, really, it's kind of like a happy story for this yeah, reason because I feel like it's given me this opportunity for something that I really, really wanted for my kids. And I, I can't tell you how much anxiety, like that idea that they, I, because of what I needed to do to support Raymare, I really felt like I was denying my other two kids this opportunity to be bilingual. It was very painful for me, mm-hmm. but I mean, you're kind of like, you know, what are you going to do? But now I feel like now we're given the second opportunity. And I think also just the fact that like the other kids will also be able to go into the bilingual program. It takes a little bit of the pressure off me, even if we do went at home because they're still going to get it at school you know and so it's like that's really been helpful for me so so yeah so that's kind of our very long language journey in our home Um, yeah it sounds like you know what we're ending up doing you're in at least an optimistic moment right now I want to I wanted to follow up about some like you said right so like because of the situation you're thinking about your younger children right how that would impact their bilingualism so I'm curious to see uh, where are they at right now and what languages they use to communicate with each other. Yeah, so with each other, they mostly use 
English. Um, and I still feel like English is the strong language. Um, that said, we, they still, there are certain things that they say in Spanish as if they, you know, prefer in Spanish, but for sure, English is still their, their strong, their stronger language. Are your kids using, besides Spanish and English, any sign language to communicate at this point? Or are you using it with Raymare? I use it with Raymare. There's words that he, um, that we do, and that helps to clarify. Um, I, so Leia, my second one, she learned a lot of those signs too, because she was learning them kind of simultaneously along with Raymare. Um, Tierra is my third one. I feel like he he, he, there were some signs that we use, and I, I do sometimes work with him on signs, but it's not something that he uses that often or that, you know, we kind of need. I think by the time with the third one, in many ways, it's like you just kind of pull them along with whatever the other older ones are doing anyways. So um, like, there's just no time really to deal with like, hey, what can we do to, to teach you? And I mean, he, he's, he learned to speak very early. And so, I mean, there's that just, he's, you know, competent at getting what he wants wants through speech so um but yeah so I'm not using that as much oh that's great I know you're still in the middle of it but looking back on these past six years is there just some advice for other moms in the same situation anything you would have done differently any kind of wisdom you've taken away from this whole process um it's hard no I I because the thing is that that's hard about the situation is that just like when I had Raymar's diagnosis at birth, I didn't want anybody to discourage me from having these high expectations for him and for my family. Um, and so I don't want to come across and say that, you know, it's really difficult. And because also like the reality for us, having the child with Down syndrome, but then also, you know, finding out later that he has autism is very different from somebody who might not have that specific situation. Mm -hmm. uh, that said, I mean, I do, and like I was kind of getting at, I do think that having, I, I don't, for, I don't think that the fact that we were speaking two languages was what led to him having a delay. The delay is because of, you know, the particular way his brain is working and him being able to produce, uh, you know, speech and, and to, to have that desire to communicate. That said, did it help? I don't think so. I mean, I don't think that having that, and I don't think that it would have helped him. I mean, but again, we have other people in our family who have other goals and other things that we want for them. And so I don't think that we, I did anything that I shouldn't have done. Maybe looking back, would I have been able to figure out how to encourage his language and maintain Spanish? Maybe, I don't know. It's just, you know, at that point, your brain is just spinning with all the different things you're trying to do with your kids. And but maybe I would have been more vigilant about like, let's not let this get out of, like, let's not, especially for the, the my daughter who was at home with me, like figuring out like, okay, well, you know, maybe we have to speak Spanish when, or English when Raymari is with us so that we can encourage his, his speaking and his understanding of the language. But, you know, when we're together alone, it's only Spanish, you know, so maybe there could have been something like that that I could do. But I think also it's just like, it, there's no, it's not a race, you know, and like teaching kids isn't a race. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and so as we think about, you know, the decisions that we make and like, okay, well, you know, if we don't do this now, what's that going to mean? But like, there's no, that it, it doesn't just end and like, there's no more time to do that. Right. So like in our case where we have to make this decision, and I think it was the right one to send Raymari to the local kindergarten, the, 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 the one that was in our neighborhood, 
but that doesn't mean that other opportunities won't present themselves down the road. And like in our case, it was the fortune of moving into a place where we happen to have the bilingual school, like, you know, three blocks away, other things could come up for other people. And so to not let it be this doomsday type of feeling like that we're done with that, mm -hmm. but to rather, you know, make the decision that's best for now, because you're trying to shape and help your kid who maybe has, um, you know, unique needs. And then, but always keep the door open and never feel like it's totally closed. And whether that comes from a different school or whether there's a different opportunity to teach that down the road. And the thing is like all of our kids are always capable of learning all the way, like through their whole lives. And so it doesn't matter like if they learn to read when they're six or if they learn to read when they're 10, they're just still always gonna be making that progress or 20 or whatever, you know, they're always just gonna be making that progress towards learning. And that's the most important thing. You know, it's not about when they've done it, but just that they're being, they're, they're constantly having that input and being challenged so that they acquire whatever skill that is best for them at that moment. And that's, I think, is the best thing that we can, like the best way that we can look at it. I, I do want to say that a lot of people, and I have found myself in that situation, we get caught up in the whole simultaneous bilingual and you have the two languages all the time. But we have, we know, Lauren and I, there's a lot of research out there that talks about sequential bilingualism. So you have one language and then you add another one, like additive bilingualism, and that's good. That happens. Who knows? Maybe Raymaya right now has one language and then he's going to add the other one. Maybe he's gonna, it doesn't matter. It does, right. The important thing is to maintain whatever he has. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I mean, it's funny because, yeah, I think you kind of get caught up on that simultaneous or like what they're getting at. Because the, in part, because I think we often hear that like when they're young, that's when they're going to be at the best. That's when they're going to do it the fastest. But yeah, I mean, I can certainly attest to that. Like I didn't learn Spanish until I was in high school. And, and I, you know, I feel like I've gone a long way with my Spanish and gotten jobs because of it. And so like, I just think, yeah, there's really no reason to feel like the door is shut if something isn't happening at such and such age, you know. And there's some research out there showing that even sequential bilingual, sometimes we do do better, like school-wise, right, on like tests and stuff like that. So it's so not something to discourage someone. It's just every single kid has their own journey when it comes to languages and you just have, you just got to support them the entire way. <laughs> yeah. Is there anything that you want society at large to know or to do that could have made your life easier if other people understood this or if the education system offered this or anything like that? Yeah, so I think that um, there were definitely times when I felt like um, people were not as aware. Well, they just, I think they weren't aware. They're not aware, again, like I mentioned about just how the concurrence of Down syndrome and autism function. But then when you add in uh, that they're being raised in a bilingual environment and how that might affect them. And so there have definitely been times where Raymar, I mean, Raymari gets assessed and evaluated so often. I can't even tell you how often. I mean, he just, it's just, it's crazy how often people are like, you know, checking in and seeing mm -hmm. how he's doing on tests. And a lot of times, I mean, I don't think they do take into consideration all those little factors. And those things do impact how, you know, what, what a child will know, what they'll produce at a given time. Uh, I definitely feel like there have been, the, a good example was, so um, learning the alphabet. 
I was told pretty early on that I should concentrate on teaching Raymare the letter sounds. And I thought that made perfect sense because the letter sounds for the most part are so similar across mm -hmm. between Spanish and English. There's a few exceptions, but a lot of them are very similar. Mm -hmm. And so therefore, um, you know, then it wasn't him having to learn, you know, are we saying it the alphabet in English today or, or in Spanish? We're just going to practice these sounds. So then he gets to his first year in preschool and they are telling me that he does not know his letters. And I was like, well, he knows the letter sounds, which also another reason why to do that is because we don't, who really cares if they can say the letter name. And for a child who has a hard time saying things like, okay, so like we're going to add in that he not only needs to know the sound, but he has to be able to say this name. And then also not only in English, but also in Spanish. I mean, it's just like, it becomes a lot on a child who has that difficulty. So um, so I thought that was very frustrating that they couldn't recognize that because he was saying the sound that he didn't know the letter and they didn't know the letter name. And so, yeah, that's just like little things, you know, that I feel like people aren't really aware of how um, maybe how maybe you have to be a little bit broader in your thinking about what a child can do and not like limit it to this exact type of assessment that you're looking at, but then something look at something Aaron, a little bit broader. Erin, you said that he gets tested often. Uh, does this testing happen yeah. in Spanish and English or just in English? So mostly, yeah, I think in English assessments and even, you know, from when he was little and it was like, and I think it's, it, it was the, the, the biggest uh, moment where you could see that difference was when he was starting preschool, because that's when he had mostly had Spanish up to that point. And then all of a sudden they want to do all this stuff in English. And it was like, okay, well, I mean, he's been, he's been learning in Spanish at home. So, you know, how are you going to adjust for that? Mm -hmm. um, so that was a big that was a big issue, but yeah, so mostly in English. But then I will say that what, another thing that complicated things for us was that because when I filled out his forms when he was starting preschool and put that Spanish was his primary language, then as he got older and started kindergarten, that was in the system as he was a, Spanish, a native Spanish speaker and not a native English speaker. So that added on more tests to him because they wanted to make sure he knew English. Yeah. And so then they were seeking him out, pulling him out. He already gets pulled out of school for a lot of different things for these tests that were ridiculous because he wasn't going to say anything in either of the two languages regardless. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, okay, I mean, this is not going to make any sense for him. So I had to re-categorize re them so that they would stop pulling him out for these useless tests. And another thing that I thought was interesting was that when we were thinking of applying for the bilingual kindergarten programs, they would do a test to see if they're a native speaker. And I was like, well, how do you do that for a child who is, you know, not very verbal? And so, and they, and so basically it was like, he would not even get to qualify for that because he wouldn't be able to say it. But I'm like, well, then in, according to your rules, he doesn't have a native language because he's not going to do it in English either. And so these types of things where I just think that people, they have, they don't, they d haven't figured out how to do that yet. <laughs> so a very narrow view. Yeah. Yeah. So what you're saying is that there isn't that much testing going on in Spanish, but even less for a kid that is not typically developing, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And you, you mentioned your book before that you thought would have been helpful. Do you want to talk more about yeah. that at all? Yes, I think that the, well, one thing I want to mention about the sign along stories, which I do think is interesting and kind of uh, is useful, especially for parents who are doing the bilingual, is that sign is like an added language support. And when, if you're teaching children these two languages, I think the signs will convey for the most part, the same, you know, you can, you can use it for both languages. And that was something that I also really liked about it 
was that like we could use the science for for more and it would also be mass and there's no like confusion confusion about that so it was just like one science that he would be able to produce and and use it for you know being um, understood in two different languages and so that part i think is great um, as as it is right now, I mean, who knows how I'll do it down the road. I mean, I did write it in English, but I would often translate it to when I was doing, reading the stories for my kids. I would just translate it in to, in my you know out loud um, into into Spanish, and so they were ha hearing it always in Spanish because I just used the words. I mean, the, whatever the signs were, I used the kind of the baby sign language model or this total communication model. So it's not necessarily that. Um, you know, it's not all ASL, and so I don't, and I'm not an expert on sign language, American sign language by any means, um, but it's more just about, you know, using signs of any kind, whether they're invented ones for your family or something that you've seen, you know, someone else do as a way to communicate, and so, um, and that's where I feel like you can definitely use that in a bilingual household, and it would just provide that support for communicating uh, mm -hmm. for young kids, because they can use that especially before they can articulate sounds they'd be able to use those signs so so yeah that makes a lot of sense yeah yeah so i think i mean i think there's a lot of opportunity for i mean this resource that i've developed and that's why i'm like oh, i can't wait till i have enough time to get it available to people mm -hmm. an observation that i have right now and it to me seems like your bilingualism has been the spark of how you have thought about language in a different way mm -hmm. Would you, did you feel that way? Because I feel like you've become very original and you have sort of like strategies and support systems that maybe someone who wasn't bilingual wouldn't have thought about. Would you say that? Yeah, okay? yeah I do think so. I mean, I think that um, language, I mean, I really like language. And so that definitely helps. And so, and like the fact that then I learned, I learned Spanish and learned it well enough mm -hmm. to be able to do lots of things with it. Um, for sure. And so even like, it's interesting because before I had Raymari, I didn't know anything about any type of therapy that any person would ever need, nothing. And so then had to quickly learn. But I have often thought about how if I had only known about these careers, and you know, especially as a speech or language pathologist, I mean, that seemed like it would be a great path for me. I would have loved doing that. Um, and so, and, I, and the reason of course, that I would gravitate towards that versus like occupational therapy or physical therapy is precisely because of my interest in language. And, and, and also, and then adding onto it that, yeah, I, I would be able to provide that, um, you know, knowledge from having two different languages, I think would also, yeah, would, I mean, I, I definitely think if I had known about that career it would have been a good choice <laughs> for me and, and for that exact reason that I love language so much. Yeah. Well, we want to thank you, Erin, for talking to us, being so honest. Um, you have a very unique scenario and like story. And I think you're going to be able to help a lot of people with this episode. So thank you. Thank you so much. There's a couple things that I think I just want to touch on about, um, like you were talking about like language development and in kids with Down syndrome, then especially those who have a dual diagnosis. Another thing that we has come into play in our family is the use of an alternative and augmentative communication device. Mm -hmm. So it's basically like a, a well right now it's an iPad that has a program called Touch Chat. And we uh, when we were exploring these and actually it was during the early intervention period, those the first three years that our speech therapist recommended that we get one and was able to get that through the funds of, from the state. Uh, but we were very uh, just needing to be aware of which of those types of devices would be best for a family that's bilingual. 
And so some of them, like they didn't have the, the, tri the, the, the pages were so different if you did the English versus the Spanish that it would be very difficult. And so we ended up with one that we felt like, okay, between the English and Spanish was okay. And then when we got it programmed, we had a toggle button between English and Spanish so that they, you could switch back and forth. And that's what we're still using. Um, now it's in an iPad that the school gives us, but it's the same program. And, um, and so, yeah, so we are working on using that. And that's the idea of that type of a device is not only for him to like communicate in the right now, but looking ahead at potential issues of clarity with his language as he wants to communicate more advanced concepts, um, having a familiarity with it now starting young so that then he would be able to, he wouldn't be in that point down the road where he's so frustrated that he can't communicate and he is just then learning this type of device. So right now we use it a lot uh, more kind of in the school environment, especially since I'm here at home and I can, and, I, and he's doing school at home, I have that available for him to use. Um, and so we're using that to, for him to be able to start being familiar enough to be able to construct sentences with it. And mm -hmm. so that's something that we're using. Um, I think there was, oh, I, well, I was also just gonna mention, cause you're asking me about some of my works. Mm -hmm. I did have, so I, I did publish through Amazon, a self-published book called Laughter is My Language. And that one is available now on Amazon. And that one is a poem that I wrote that was inspired by Ray Mare uh, not being able to speak and instead using laughter as a form of communication. And so I accompany each stanza of this poem with picture of a child who has um, speech delay for a variety of reasons. And so um, that book, I think, again, like, as you mentioned, I am so interested in language and this has just been such, so at the forefront, even before he was born, just because I was interested in having the bilingual family, but then realizing what that, what it was starting to look like. I think the book, although it is definitely for kids and it has these pictures that, you know, kids would be able to relate to is also a reminder to the parents who are reading the book aloud that this is uh, it's a journey and it's a journey that has, you know, it's not this thing that we have to have our kids meeting these milestones right away. But as we work with our kids, that there's all these other things that we can take away from how they learn and how they communicate um, that is also, you know, really enjoyable and beautiful. You're definitely going to have to send us that link whenever you finish your series right now. So we can link that to the episode because I'm pretty sure okay. we'll want to look at that for sure. <laughs> okay. But this one is called Laughter is My Language. Yeah. Laughter is My Language. This and one is available. You can, this one you can get on Amazon. The other ones, yeah, for sure I'll send that to you because I know it's like, I mean, I, again, I just think it's a resource. If I had those things that I, I would be so happy. I would have been so happy to find it. <laughs> for sure. I'm sure, I'm sure a lot of uh, people out there are going to find it useful. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much, Gary. Uh, that was it for today. We hope to see you next time. Hasta luego. So ever have questions for us or questions about the podcast go to home and our website at www.multilingualmamaspodcast.com and click on the link for questions make sure to follow us on facebook and instagram and stay tuned for another episode of multilingual mamas <laughs>